Nehemiah 2 verse 11. Nehemiah now starts to inspect Jerusalem's walls. If you've got an NIV Bible, that's what it says at the top of verse 11. That wasn't actually in the original scripture, but it is a good introduction. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me, except the one I was riding on. What I love about this, this book is the detail. This is a proper, like, an eyewitness. This is his account. This is what I did. He's actually so concerned to put this stuff in there. So, you know, there's only one horse and blah, blah, blah. By night, I went out through the valley gate, through the jackal well, and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on towards the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I'd gone or what I was doing, because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or the nobles or officials of any others who would be doing the work. Just before you read on, that's really good leadership. Just if you aspire to be a leader or if you are a leader, sometimes you just got to get on and do stuff in the background. And people might be talking and saying, why is this not happening? Why is that not happening? But I can assure you, as a leader for over 25 years, there's often a lot of work going on in the background that people don't see. And sometimes, as a leader, you've got to keep your mouth shut. It's just, just a useful little leadership tip that sometimes you've got to look at things and make your assessment before you talk to other people. And weather the storm. When people are saying, why is this not happening? Why is that not happening? Leaders sometimes have access to information that other people don't. And there's got to be trust both ways. And that's really good leadership there by Nehemiah. He's keeping his own counsel until the right time. So he's, I said nothing to the Jews, to the priests, or nobles, or officials, or anyone else who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. So what he's doing there, this is another good, this is just little leadership side lessons. If you aspire to be a leader, or if you are a leader, he reiterates the story. Now, you'll notice that at the front, a lot, I reiterate why we're doing what we do, and what we're here for, and you know, to why we need a building, and what our heart is for the hurting, the, past, the lost, the poor, and the broken, and the situations we're in. That's good leadership. Just keep reminding people of the story, why you've got to do what you've got to do. And then he says, uh, come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. So it starts to gear the people up. We will no longer be in disgrace. I also told him about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. And what you notice with Nehemiah is he always, 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 no matter how successful he is or how good a leader he is, he always points beyond himself to God, which is a beautiful thing. I mean, that is such, such good leadership because we serve one who is greater. And you might have good skills as a leader, but a good leader in the kingdom always points beyond himself or herself to Jesus. And they replied, because now they're all super pumped. I told them about the great hand of my God and me and what the king had said. And they replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. But when Sanballat, the Horonite, um, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you're doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We are his servants. We'll start rebuilding the wall. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem 
or any claim or historic right to it. And sometimes you've got to state the facts. And that's what he does right there. So there's a few little quick lessons here on Nehemiah. Well, hopefully quick. And then maybe we'll pray and we'll worship a little bit if we have time after this before we have a cup of tea together. Number one. And I love this. Nehemiah does a proper survey of the situation. And he uses his skills as a strategic leader. I think in Christian community, we need two things going on. One, we've got to be people who are full of faith and expectation that God can do utterly remarkable things. Number two, you've also got to use your brain and the skills that God's given us. Now, um, some years ago, um, many years ago actually, uh, some of you would have heard me say this before, but it's some time back. CVM was much smaller, Christian Vision for Men. We weren't running a gathering, and we just had a meeting about eight months earlier where CVM was called something else at the time. So I was the re-founder and um, took the shell of an organisation essentially and rebuilt it so it went national and international. But we had no money and no staff and no resource. Fairly typical situation I found myself in over the years as a serial entrepreneur, social entrepreneur and pioneer. I normally start things with nothing and, um, and, and no product to sell and no way to get any money. And I cast this vision for what CVM is today. And, um, and the chairman, Ian Manifold, looked at me and he said, are you going to do that? I said, I don't know. And then he looked at me and he said, well, it's do or die, isn't it? If we don't do this, we're dead. So we've got to rebuild this organisation. So let's just go for it. And they signed off a budget for which we had no money for. Um, this has been the story of my life. Uh, so then it beholds on me to go and get the money. Anyway, I started to rebuild CVM. Now, what you'll find is in the, in the donation charity world, and we're high net worth individuals. I've just come for this massive, well, it wasn't, it was a small intimate soiree of extremely wealthy people in Durham on Friday. Um, very few people actually want to give you money for an idea. A lot of people want to give you money when they see it's already happening. This is a terrible conundrum for people like me because I can't build something unless I've got the cash. But this time with CVM, I started to do it, but no one was giving me any money. So I was leaning on favours from friends, which is also the story of my life. If you do this to me, maybe I'll do that in 20 years' time and see if we can get away with it. Anyway, um, essentially, long story short, we ran out of money. And um, I hit a situation where I was speaking at this gig in London at Westminster Chapel. And, um, and there was a very famous guy speaking called Philip Yancey. And I was the side hustle. I was like the warm-up act. Um, and then Philip Yancey was speaking. This was years ago. Um, but I was on a train going to London knowing that if I didn't get 10 grand by Saturday or at least a Monday, we were insolvent and we were dead, and I couldn't pay on the few staff that I had. And I was looking yet again, do I have to sell my house? Do I have to do this? Constant situation we found ourselves in over the years. So we pioneered for Jesus. Anyway, I thought, I can't be depressed about it. Just got to get on with it. When I was on the way down, uh, Philip Yancey was the keynote speaker doing the big keynote evening celebration talk. I got a little message on my phone that said, Philip Yancey's messed up his flight times could you do the keynote talk instead? So I was like, ooh, all right then, happy days. So Philip Yancey, the famous author of What's So Amazing About Grace, became my warm-up act, which is really good. Anyway, and he's a proper amazing guy, and his talk was incredible. But there's a reason why the Lord organised this. After Philip finished his talk, and there was a little break, and then there was some worship, this bloke came up to me, and he said, I've heard, he said, um, it's Philip Yancey, been and gone. And I went, yeah. He said, who's speaking instead? I went, me. He said, who are you? 
<laughs> went, my name's Carl Beach. He went, oh yeah, he went, you meant to be earlier. I went, yeah. He said, what do you do? I said, I lead a men's ministry. He went, oh. He said, who's in charge of, like, if you've got a prophetic word? And I went, well, it's some new wine bloke over there. And he said, oh. I said, what's your word? And he said, well, he said, um, I, I, I think um, someone here needs to make a £10,000 gift to someone. <laughs> I so wanted to manipulate that situation. <laughs> Everything in me wanted to manipulate it really badly. I was like, oh God, oh God. I went, it's me. It's obviously me. And I didn't. I went, how interesting. <laughs> I said, I'll pass it to the new wine guy who's in charge of where the prophetic words happen, the conference host. Anyway, he started to walk off. And then he came back. And he went, just as I walked away, he said, something just happened to me. I went, what is he? He went, I've got to make the 10 grand gift. And I went, have you? And everything was over, he'd say, I think you need to give it to me. <laughs> I really did. But I think I've got to be honest, I can't. So I went, wow, that's amazing. Well, I'd suggest this test you really pray it through. That's a serious amount of money. You know, I thought, you could be either extremely rich or a nutter. So um, anyway, he then walked away. And then, seriously, he came back again. And he went, I've got to give it to you. I went, have you? <laughs> anyway, and he actually did. And he turned out to be this extremely wealthy guy who had a trust fund with his partner. So I'm like, I'm literally preached my heart out, saw some great stuff happen, and felt totally pumped and excited. Then on Monday morning, I was walking Flick in the days when she could still be walked. And um, we have to drag her now on a skateboard. Anyway, honestly, what a, what a faff. Anyway, um, poor old dog. Don't be sorry for it's a German Shepherd dog. She'll be fine. She'll go to dog heaven. Anyway, um, um, I got a phone call when I was walking dog, the dog in the plantation. And it was him. And the tone of his voice was shocker. He went, I need to talk to you about that. Because obviously, I swapped numbers because I'm not letting him go without having his phone number. <laughs> and um, he phoned me and he said, um, about that £10,000 gift. And I went, oh yeah. He went, well, there's been a complication. I thought, oh, sorry. Oh. He said, no, no, it's no problem, it's no problem. Honestly, not a problem at all. But he went, no, 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 no. He said, I need to tell you this amazing story. I said, I told my business partner I have the trust fund with this morning about the 10 grand gift. And he went, oh, no. He said, I've earmarked that 10,000 pounds for an orphanage in India. How bad did I feel? <laughs> and I went, I went, oh, no, you've got to give it to the children. <laughs> give the money to the children. He went, no, no. He said, just shut up and listen, which is a typical response I get. He said, listen. He said, just as I was saying that, he said, I put the phone down, I was working out what to say to you, and then we got another call. Someone felt compelled over the weekend to make a £10,000 gift to the orphanage in India, so we got a £10,000 float, so the orphanage are going to get the gift, and Christian Vision for Men are going to get the gift. Ten grand in the bank, paid the staff, never a problem ever since that day. Isn't that amazing? And only Jesus can do that. Utterly amazing. However, I resolved after the stress of that situation, and for many years, couldn't grow my hair because of the stress. Obviously, you see, I'm feeling far more at peace these days. Um, that I'd never get myself there again. There was a time when we had to stretch out and trust the Lord and expect the miraculous, and God delivered. And I have seen miraculous provision like this over the years. But I really got into planning and strategy after that. Now, there are some times when you have to leap. And there are. And I just want to say this. Some of my leadership team are here. There may be times when I lead us into a leap again. Because that is a model of faith. But I didn't want to put my staff at CVM through that stress again at that time. 
And actually we haven't because we got better at planning and we got more known. And so people are more happy to invest in us now than they were back then. People give us money because they know we deliver results. Nehemiah, it seems to me here, doesn't use a, a, a leap. He uses his brain and he uses strategy. And the problem is, sometimes God intervenes and sometimes he doesn't and expects us to use our skills. I actually think it's a shallow faith, an immature faith, when all we hope for is miracles. But we need both. Um, I just think it's very fascinating that when God wanted to knock a wall down, he sent a band in, in Jericho. He sent a worship band. But when he wanted to build a wall, he sent some surveyors and planners and builders. It's different, isn't it? Different models of faith, different seasons, when different things happen. So sometimes, or many times over the years, people have said, you know, but all we need to do, Carl, is pray. Now, that's not true. Now, we need to pray, but we also need to take action. And what you see in Nehemiah is the miracle prayer and action working together. And so he does this survey work, and he walks around the walls, and he goes to the valley gate and the dung gate, and he can't get access to one bit, so he goes at night. What I want to say is, there's a time for everything. And there's a danger in our church, not particularly at the moment, but in churches where we're full of the Holy Spirit and we expect miracles, it becomes all about that. And we reject strategy and good thinking. Now, some people in our church are gifted with strategy and good thinking and planning. And quite frankly, we wouldn't be getting into this building if we didn't have them. But somehow we need to keep the, the sharpness of faith, the expectation of miracles, with good planning and good strategy too. And increasingly, as we start really trying to help hurting and broken people, and we were talking this week, um, actually on Saturday, we need more policies, we need more structures, we need more strategies, or people are going to get hurt. And those gifts are a gift to the church. We need both. But we mustn't lose the expectation that you can do the absolute miraculous, but also we've got to get our hands dirty. There's a time for everything. And Karen, while I was sitting having me lovely morning coffee with Karen this morning, said, oh, I love that proverb about the ant. You know, regard the way of the ant, the worker ants in Proverbs 6.60. And I felt like, after Karen said that, and I finished my coffee and made sure it wasn't a caffeine rush, I feel like what the Lord was saying is, uh, for our church, this is the season of all hands on deck. All our gifts need to be used. Now, I, I don't want a small group getting burnt out. And that's inevitably what happens when we take on big projects. There, there is stuff for everybody to do to serve Jesus. And your faith comes alive when you get your hands dirty. For many years, I've set up this charity now called The Edge, which is working uh, now increasingly across the nation, reach, helping the poor. But for many years, I wanted to call the new charity that I created one day, because I've had the vision for The Edge for many, many years. Dirty hands and smelly feet. I did. Because <laughs> I went, it's working so hard, we didn't have time to wash our socks and we're getting our hands dirty, which is terrible in coronavirus times. Um, but anyway, uh, so I'm so glad I didn't call it that. <laughs> Terribly inappropriate at the moment. But I, but I feel like that's a word for our church. I, I often worry about, you know, people each week on setup looking just tired and people slaving away doing visiting during the week and running groups. And there's a little army in the background, the unsung heroes. And if you're on setup, we are going to take you out for a meal to say thank you. Probably go somewhere cheap like spoons or something, but hey, you know, times are tough. Anyway, we are going to take you out to say thank you because um, we really do appreciate it. But this is the season to get a new building. 
and I expect that we are going to get it for all hands on deck if we're going to do something beautiful for Jesus. But also I want to say, in a church where our emphasis can be praying and worship and expecting for the miraculous, we do not despise your gift if you're an accountant, a project planner, someone who's good at policies and structures. You are a gift to the kingdom. You are. And don't ever think that's not a spiritual gift. Now, I, I, I wrote a book called 52 Men. And some of the men that I picked on, it was four men, so we wrote about men. Some of the men we, we, we talked about were the people who had skills in building and craftsmanship. Because you are super skilled, and that can be a gift from God, but so can planning and strategy. And honestly, Rich Kirk is a gift to us. Everything that I'm saying that's crazy at the front, he'll be making notes saying, how am I going to pay for that? Because the miracle of money doesn't always happen. Then he has to make tough calls and, or have tough conversations with me. Although we haven't had many of them, have we? Because I'm so reasonable to deal with. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> moving on. Um, I, I just want to say that is a gift to the kingdom. And if you're sitting there thinking, I'm good at this, or that's my gift and I can't see a place for it, there will be in this church. Because increasingly, we just really want to be innovative and entrepreneurial. The other interesting thing is, and it's, it's a side note, you won't see this coming out of the scripture, but it's something that's on my heart. I travel the country extensively preaching at churches and I'm seeing something very, very interesting happen. And this is not a moan. I've had this said to me four or five times in the last month by different leaders of actually quite large churches. What we're experiencing across the country at the moment is numbers of people committing to a church actually going up. Where churches are more Pentecostal charismatic, commitment to church is going up and numbers of people coming to Christ are going up, but attendance is actually going down. So people are giving and they're committing, but attendance is dropping to once a month. That is a national trend. It used to be you're committed to church if you went three times a month. In fact, what we used to do was used to sacrifice family on the altar of church. We did. You'd go twice on a Sunday, a midweek prayer meeting, lead a youth group, go to the early morning prayer meeting, and family suffered. And it was terrible. When Karen and I first came to church, we exhausted ourselves setting stuff up and being at every single meeting. But now what we're doing actually, often is sacrificing the work of the kingdom on the altar of family. That, that is, there's, the balance needs to be found somewhere if we're to reach the hurting, the poor, the lost. I, I think the emphasis is God, family, church. I do. I think your, your family is your family and, and having a healthy life actually becomes before your commitment to this. But what we don't want is your commitment to this walking so far down we can't build anything. So, and I'm not saying it's all about Sunday, but it's, there has to be something, I think, as an expression of your commitment to Christ, of getting involved. That is not me moaning, it's me thinking somehow we've got to challenge this trend that we've seen around the country. So I've, I've met leaders of churches, over a thousand people. In fact, I spoke at a church it has 800 committed people attending and they had 200 people in their church on a Sunday. And he said, we see nearly a different 200 people every week. That's interesting times, isn't it? What it does mean is that Rich Old has to repeat his notices every single week to make sure that everyone hears them. Honestly, that is not me moaning. It's me thinking, how do we adapt? How do we build? How do we get our messaging across? How do we see people come to Christ? I think we're heading into a season for this church where it's all hands on deck and all our gifts are needed. 
Number two, be honest about where you're at. The other thing I love about Nehemiah is he is actually honest about the situation that he finds himself. You can't move forward in any organisation unless you know exactly what God has placed in your hands and exactly honestly where you're at. Who's on board, who's not, how much money you've got coming in. And I often do a little bit of consultancy work these days to, to put the breakfast uh, on the table. And I advise charities and do a bit of consultancy work. And, and one of the big things I have to do sometimes is say, because I'm actually more into data than people think. I might create this impression that I just sort of clown around. But actually, I'm a little bit detail-minded. In fact, those who won't really know, I get quite fastidious about detail. And I often say, can I have your database, please? And can I see your proper accounts, not your consolidated accounts? Can I actually have a look at your accounts? And often, what they'll tell me where their charity is at does not match the true statistics of the situation. And you can't move forward unless you're honest about where you're at. And when this church has gone through trials, one of the hardest things to do is actually be honest about where people are at. And, and it's a hard thing to face. But you can't rebuild unless you're honest. So he does this survey. But I did want to say as well, it's the same in your private life. It's the same in your family life. You can't move forward with God unless you're honest about where you're at. Um, me and Karen... We try and sit down and we talk honestly about where our marriage is at, which mostly involves how much I'm winding her up or how, <laughs> how, how much of a pain I am. Um, and it is generally true. And the reason that we are married 25 years and been together for 30 years, a lot of that is Karen's graciousness and calm and peace. But a lot of it too is we're prepared to be honest. And that strengthens your love for one another if you can tough it out. It's the same with your kids. Your kids are kicking off. Often we put a rose-tinted image over our kids. We can't actually face the reality of where things are at. You can't rebuild or rescue unless you're honest. One of the things about the Freedom in Christ course that we're doing encourages you to be honest about issues that are in your heart. And I'm often having conversations at the moment with people who didn't realise they had issues of unforgiveness in their heart towards stuff. I myself have had to have very honest conversations with myself over the years and with accountability people, so that I'm in a fit shape to preach the gospel. I can't stand up the front and preach a message of grace and forgiveness unless my heart's right. And I have, at times, disqualified myself from preaching. I actually disqualified myself from preaching recently, very recently, because my heart wasn't right. Because I need to know, if I'm standing up in front of you, that my heart is at peace. I can't do it, because I'm not a liar. I have to have integrity. And I encourage you to do the same. There is such a good illustration here about honest survey. An honest survey of your life and your relationships. It could be painful. But if you're honest with yourself and you face up, there God's blessing is. It is. That is the path to peace. It really is. So I just encourage you on that. Number three, verse 19. Wouldn't you know it? As soon as you've got a good idea, and as soon as you set your heart to it, and everyone gets behind you, do you know what happens? Get a little bit of opposition. And over the years, that has happened to me. It's every twist and turn. And I was preaching about this at a conference last week. And, it, and it's really weird. Although this opposition here in the scripture comes from Sam Ballat. Because it's very interesting, isn't it? Look, verse 19. Let's just look at it again. Sam, when Sam Ballot, the Horonite, 
to buy the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. Mocking and ridicule. So what mocking and ridicule does? Kills your heart. If you're on the end of it, it really disables your confidence. It's such a clever enemy strategy. What is this you are doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? Now we'll look at his answer in a moment. But what I've found that the enemy has done over the years is this. Most opposition that I've encountered, and my goodness, I've had a lot, it starts with a little whisper. It's the whisper. It's the whisper that floats around the community. When you look at Genesis, you look at Adam and Eve, what was the first thing the serpent said? Did God say? Did God say? Actually, for me, it's the little words of doubt that start creeping around. And what I found is I start to walk into an organisation for a meeting or into a church and stand in front of everyone, which is a vulnerable place to be. And I know that there's a whisper out there. And it's insidious. And actually, what it does, when the enemy is so clever, is it can feed excitement, sinful excitement, in the people. But the person who's trying to wage war against the enemy gets massively, massively disabled and actually can be knocked out of the game. Um, I trained for ministry in 1996. I've been to Bible college and everything. I keep reminding people of that because I don't think they believe me. But I did a proper degree in theology and everything. And I did it while I was planting a church at the same time, typically taking on too much. And um, um, out of the 15 guys I trained with, three are in ministry. That's it. The others have either quit through burnout, moral failure, or sacked from their churches by a church members' meeting, or had rebellion and trouble. Um, I'd be interested to chat to Jim after, actually, find out how many, how many he saw drop off over in many, many years, but I'm guessing quite a few. Yeah, they're getting a nod. Loads. I've got some statistics at the moment, but I'm not going to recount them until I've actually evidenced it, because sometimes people make up statistics. 75% of statistics are made up at the spot. Do you see what I did there? It was actually quite clever, and no one appreciated it. I just made that up while I was standing here. Anyway, um, but the statistic I did read was that 60% of um, leaders of churches get knocked out of the game through opposition, uh, which causes burnout. Um, Chris, a uh, uh, parish vicar, you probably know a whole bunch of people as well, and Steve. In fact, the guys here at Season Church Leaders have got their own stories of opposition. Um, it's the still small voice and a whisper that spreads around. Now, I'm not saying this to defend my own position because I don't feel I've got one to defend. Because one of the things that Karen was saying to me the other day, what a beautiful place this church is at the moment. Everyone's on the same page. There's a lot of love and joy. And actually, I honestly said this in the prayer meeting beforehand. There are some people going through terrible trials in our church at the moment. But do you know what's different between now and five years ago? When people face trials, there's grace. There is. There is even joy and grace in the trials. So I'm not making a pointed comment about our church because I don't feel that this is in our church at all. In fact, you are a very beautiful and pleasing bunch of people to lead and I love you all dearly, even though my face doesn't show it. But I do. Um, what I'm saying is, let's not be whisperers. Let's guard it. Let's guard it. 
if you have a problem, what do we do? We front it out and we have honest, raw conversation. Littered with grace. One of my reputations at work is, I'll say, you know, Richard got signed of his probation this week. Well done, Rich. And what I said... Not probation service. No, that's, that's, that's entirely... I wasn't going to mention that you're on probation with the probation service. That's totally your thing. I didn't even know. Anyway. Uh, anyway. But I said to Rich, one of the things that I'm known for, which Rich has noticed, is that I am up for having the difficult conversation. I, I will say the last 10% because I don't like the enemy getting in. I'm happy to have it said to me, but I am very, very honest um, because I don't like the enemy creeping in. And some people find it difficult, but actually I think that's the path of peace. And you can say difficult things and still be mates. Like this church, we're friends on mission together, mates on a mission. But you have to be honest because um, that stops the enemy getting in. And it stops frustrations getting in. Because what the enemy wants to do is knock this church out of the game. And he does it with a whisper. And he does it with opposition. So what I want to say is, if you aspire to be a leader, there will be seasons when you are not loved. Fact. If you aspire to be a leader, and if you want to pioneer anything, there will be seasons of opposition and pain. There will be. I was lecturing uh, 100 church planters last week, and I said to them, if you want to plant a church, there will be pain, and there will be opposition. There will be joy, but there will be pain. And the best advice that I can give anyone who aspires to be in leadership, or any of us, is Exodus 14, 14. Be silent. The Lord will fight for you. It may take time, but give it to Jesus. And Philippians 4, set your mind on what is good and noble and true. Set your mind on, on heaven, on the beautiful things. Don't set your mind in the gutter. Don't think about revenge and being a weirdo. Just keep your mind on heaven and give it to God. And just be a person of peace. And I'm, I'm reflecting a lot at the moment on Psalm 37. And I'd encourage you to read the first 10, 15 verses, but maybe 20 verses. They're absolutely beautiful. The other thing I just want to say on this, because it's not because it's where we're at, it's where we could go as the church grows and we develop ministry, as we plant congregations into Sheffield and other places. Um, the other thing I have to be honest about, and it's different to what we see here in Scripture, but in 25 years of leadership, I've never, ever, ever had opposition from non-Christians. Fact. Now, honestly, I've got to call it. I'm just saying it as a warning. Um, not because it's where we're at. But I've pioneered ministries. I've planted churches. I've created ministries that have gone around the world, done things that we've seen a lot of people come to Christ. And do you know what? In all that time, I've never had a non-Christian go, I hate you. I hate what you're doing. I think you're disgusting. Oh, I heard you're this. I heard you're that. It's never happened. Well, the only person who's done that is probably somebody in my family. <laughs> but that's different. Um, not, not Karen. <laughs> Wider family. The only opposition, honestly, that I've ever experienced has come from the, from, from the saints. It's the believers. It's friendly fire. And that's the only time I've ever experienced it. And we've just got to guard our hearts. I believe everything in here, in Scripture, is here for a reason. I'm not, it's not in our church at the moment, but by the grace of God, let's not let that happen ever. And not go back to days like that. Um, what a horrible thing it is. 
um, and how debilitating it is for those in leadership and so painful for those who are watching it happen in the congregation. It is the most soul-destroying thing. People come to church, it's a place of refuge and hope and love and grace. We, we need to be, aspire to be the most gracious, loving, peaceful, kind, give the benefit of doubt, believe the best people walking on the face of the planet. We really do. If you hear something about me, it might be true, give the benefit of doubt and believe the best. If you hear something about your neighbour, give the benefit of doubt and believe the best. Have the conversation, but don't do the whispers. If you see your brother or sister falling into sin, have the honest conversation. Restore them gently, bring them back. Don't form triangles. Don't let the enemy get in there by multiple conversations with different people scooting all over the church. The enemy loves it. And I, I, don't, I think the Lord hates it. So let's, let's, let's be beautiful people of hope and grace, and love and peace. Verse 20 is, for me, absolutely brilliant. The, the, the whispers are starting. Sambalit, he comes at him again and again and again. And here's the thing. What I'm saying is, this, this temptation to go that way or the enemy will happen. And the enemy will attack us again and again and again through different ways. Honestly, I can say, in 25 years of pioneering ministry, I've been battered by the enemy. Like We have, as a family, been battered. But you've got to keep looking up. You've got to keep your attention on heaven and resist the devil. You have, and you mustn't let him in. When Jesus was tempted in the desert, do you notice what he says afterwards? I think it's in the Luke account. He says, the enemy left him until an opportune time. When you're at your weakest, he'll come at you. So be vigilant. So don't think I'm saying these things because I think it's in the church. I'm not. I'm saying these things because I know he'll come back at us. Especially as we start to take ground, which we are. Verse 20, I love I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. That is a declaration of faith. A leader who has truly heard from the Lord can't unsee what he's seen or what she has seen. They can't. I can't unsee what God has shown me for Redeemer King. That is the reason I belligerently keep getting up the front week in, week out, no matter what. A, Jesus loves me. B, I love you lot. C, I've seen what God has shown me. I've dreamt it. I felt it, I can feel it. And that's why we keep standing up, no matter what. And you speak it out as a leader. The God of heaven will give us success. And inside he's probably thinking, you better do as well, I'm going to look a right idiot. But, that's, but that's, what you, that's often what I feel like, this is going to happen. Oh no. Uh, we are his servants. We'll start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. I've said that to the devil, actually. I've said the Lord rebukes you, because that's the scriptural pattern. I said, we're going to do this in Chesterfield. We're going to build the churches together. We're going to, I'm starting to try and network with the churches around the town together. I've just organised another coffee. So I have a bunch of leaders in a room. At least try and get us talking and loving on each other. Because we've got to rebuild this town together. That's the only way we're going to do it. But also to speak out in faith what God's doing here. But the other beautiful thing is, because um, he's, again, pointing beyond himself to Christ, isn't he here? He's saying, God will give us success. Not me and my, my degree in chartered surveying is going to give us success. The God of heaven will give us success. He points beyond himself, but he gives it to heaven. And I do that a lot. When I've got problems or snags with people or accusations, I often say, I had one person right in my face once, well, it's happened a few times, said, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that. I'm go I've had someone say to me, 
I'm going to go into battle against you. And I'm going to say this and I'm going to say that. I've had it said to me. Lies. I think, how am I going to defend against this? I've had it said to my face. Do you know what I reply? That's fine, brother. I'm going to give it to heaven. Heaven will deal with it. And the last person I said that to went, what? I'm giving it to heaven. Heaven will deal with it. And I actually had someone once say to me once, don't do that. I did. He said, don't do that. I went, I've done it. I'm giving it to heaven. We'll let heaven decide. Because one of the best things you can do as a leader, in our context, because we're not rebuilding walls in Jerusalem, we're all about rebuilding relationships and all that kind of stuff and connecting people to the Lord. One of the best things you can have is an undefended heart. It's terrible when leaders start to defend themselves. And you end up with some tit-for-tat, terrible thing. Leaders have got to be secure. As best as possible, put their security and their trust and their hope in Jesus. And let him decide. Let heaven decide. Because, of course, heaven may decide against you. <laughs> it may say there is something wrong in your heart, but you've got to be open for that. But what I love about Nehemiah is his confidence is fully in his God. And God will do it. And, of course, you know, we've read the end of Nehemiah if you've been reading your Bible, so you know the punchline, they actually rebuilt the walls in 52 days, which is a miracle of prayer and action and really great leadership and inner security and peace. They, but they had to, as we will discover, they had to defend themselves too in some ways. They had their spears in one hand and their shovels in the other, but they just trusted the Lord. That's the best place that we could put ourselves in as a church and in all our relationships.